Hello, and welcome to a special podcast from the Hoover Institution's Working Group on Foreign Policy and Grand Strategy, part of a series on global governance. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, and I'm joined today by Stephen Krasner, Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, the Graham H. Stewart Chair in International Relations at Stanford, and the Chairman of the Foreign Policy and Grand Strategy Working Group. Steve, thanks for joining us. Happy to be with you. Now, as I mentioned a moment ago in that intro, the focus of this new series of essays is global governance. But in practice, of course, that doesn't mean every nation in the world holding an equal distribution of powers. There's usually someone in the driver's seat. And in the years since the end of World War II, the United States has been what you call in your essay the indispensable power. So uh, before we get into some of the present-day issues, let's just examine some of that history, this era of American dominance. Uh, how would you grade it out? What kind of stewards of the global order have we been? I think you would have to say in any kind of reasonable historical perspective, A++. No major wars among major powers, rising prosperity in virtually all areas of the world, extremely impressive. I mean, not that everything always worked perfectly, but on the whole, things worked extremely well and certainly better than they worked in any other historical era. And Steve, you talk in your piece at Defining Ideas about some of the issues in, in uh, recent years that have chipped away maybe at America's standing in the world. The wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, the financial crisis, um, the NSA program, the use of drones. When we're thinking about those issues, is this a matter of, you know, hey, the preeminent power is always going to come in for a disproportionate amount of griping? Or is it we're really starting to see some systemic decline. In other words, is this just the cost of doing business when you're running the show or do developments like these pose real threats to our continued preeminence in the global order? Yeah, so I think that's a question that's very well put. I think the dominant power always comes in for a lot of griping. Um, we're living in a period now in which there's certainly been a lot of criticism of the United States over the last decade and certainly Several of the things that the United States is engaged in have not gone as well as we hoped. But this is hardly anything new. Um, Anti-Americanism in various forms has been around for a long time. I think the big change now is partly that the distribution of power is changing, and the big player here is obviously China. But I think the other fundamental issue is that the kind of consensus that existed about the big challenges in the world – the consensus that was really shared during the Cold War across the non-communist world, at least, the, at, least the, at least Western Europe, the major industrialized countries in North America, Western Europe, and East Asia, that consensus is broken down. So we don't have shared agreement with Germany or the UK or France or Japan about exactly what the major threats in the world are today. Um, and even if we see that there are similar threats, we weigh them differently and we have disagreements about what to do about them. That, I think, is a major challenge for the U.S. What do you attribute the breakdown of that consensus to? I'm sure there are a number of variables, but what are some of the main ones that cause those fissures? So I think they're really hard problems. I mean, it's not that somebody is screwed up someplace. But if you look at the 
period after the Second World War. I mean, you'd had these two horrendous wars in Europe. And by the late 1940s, early 1950s, it was clear that the Soviet Union was a threat to the West and to Western values. If you look at the contemporary era, the kinds of issues that we're dealing with are ones for which there is no clear consensus. So the United States has put a lot of weight and a lot of resources into dealing with transnational terrorist threats. But there's certainly significant political players in Europe who think that terrorism should just be dealt with as if it were a criminal matter. If you look at the recent disagreements, um, tensions, I mean, some of which have been below the surface about how to deal with Russia in the contemporary period. Um, I've been in Germany for the last two months, and you can see I'm in Germany's close to Russia. Um, it um, is more dependent on Russia economically than the United States is. Germany is worried about its relations with other members of the European Union, not just its relations with the United States. So whether we should deal with Putin by putting up a really strong and forceful, giving him a really strong and forceful reaction to what's happened in the Ukraine or continuing to engage with him is something about which there is no clear consensus among the major powers in Europe and the United States. You present three big challenges in your essay, two of which are on the security front, one of which is terrorism, which you just talked on a little bit. Um, the other of which, the big nation state one, is China, which you mentioned in, in passing a moment ago. Um, Steve, I'm, I'm going to give you this layman's impression of the policy discussion on China, and you correct it where you think it's wrong. It seems schizophrenic. On the one hand, there's a lot of happy talk about integrating China into the international community and how their place in the world economy is going to inevitably push them in an integrationist direction. And on the other hand, there seems to be just as much talk about this surly China that wants untrammeled influence in the region. Do, do we know what we're doing here? I, I think your observation is right on target. So I think we do know what we're doing. What we don't know is how it's going to come out. So what we've been doing okay. for the last 20 years is integrating China into this global world order that basically we played the major role in creating. China's membership in the WTO would be the clearest um, sign of that. Um, at the same time, of course, we're hedging uh, about China. I think the problem for China is that what happens with China will be a question of internal dynamics in China itself. One possibility is that China continues to grow, transitions to a democracy. We won't exactly see eye to eye with the Chinese. We'll have disagreements and differences. But under those circumstances, it's easy to imagine that we could would be able to continue with essentially the same set of rules and norms that we've had for the last 50 years. Another possibility is that China continues to grow, becomes really wealthy and remains autocratic. That would be historically unprecedented for a large country and would be a huge challenge to the global order that the United States has created. Another possibility is that China will falter or even really falter badly, in which case the problem would be managing uh, China's attempts to deal with this new situation that it might find itself in, especially rising nationalism. 
So, and there's no clear, again, no clear consensus about how to do this. So the Chinese have just established what they've called an Asia Infrastructure Investment Bank. Um, the United States has decided not to join that bank. I think that is the right decision. I think we should ignore Chinese initiatives to create new international institutions. And we should try and integrate China further into the institutions that we already have. But the major European countries have decided to join. And it's hard to see how you can make a definitive argument one way or the other. I think we're right, but at this point, we really can't demonstrate it. The other schizophrenic thing that you're pointing to is absolutely correct, but I think how it turns out is really going to depend on what happens in China. And those are developments over which we have really limited influence. The other issue that you bring up in your essay as a a threat to global order beyond these security issues, there's an interesting discussion in here of economics because you lay out in your essay all the massive international advances made during these years of American sort of dominance of the international system, longer life expectancy, growth in per capita GDP, uh, increased literacy rates, reduced prospects of dying a violent death, which is not a minor one to be sure. And yet you write in the piece that there are a growing number of people around the world who – I'm quoting you here – are not enchanted by America's market-oriented globalizing vision. On a superficial reading, Steve, that sounds like looking a gift horse in the mouth. What, what's going on there? Yeah, so I think partly um, I think it is actually looking a gift horse in the mouth. But I think two things are going on. You know, one is that there's always been you know a set of values you know most strongly manifest in continental Europe, um, which see the state as legitimately playing a m- much larger role in the economy and providing a much more significant safety net than you have in the United States. This is most clearly manifest in the Scandinavian countries, and in some places, I shouldn't say some place in Norway, which has a ton of money from oil, it really works great. And that issue has always been present, this difference in the kind of modal views about the role of the state, which have differed between Europe and the United States. However, I think the issues that we're dealing with have become exacerbated by a set of problems, which we see in the United States as well as in Europe, um, where if you look at median income levels in the United States, they have not improved at all. Uh, the Germans have done very well over the last 10 or 15 years by essentially renegotiating their labor relations um, in the early aughts. The French have not done this successfully. The Greeks have obviously totally failed. The United Kingdom, and this is really a significant development, um, is playing a much smaller role. It's, it's little England. It's not – I mean the UK for decades punched above its weight. We're now in a situation where there will be a, a plebiscite um, on a referendum on continued membership in the EU. It's likely to win. But if it loses and the EU withdraws from uh, the European Union and the UK withdraws from the European Union, it's very likely that Scotland would vote for independence. Um, that would be – not, in my view, a very good thing for the UK, but it would certainly not be a good thing for the United States. So I think the pressures that you see in large parts of the population across the industrialized world, which are a function of of both globalization and technological change, you know, has created a, a, a set of problems which are separate and different from 
just these differences in modal ideological um, positions uh, between the U.S. and Europe or some parts of Europe. When we're talking about global governance, what are we looking at going forward in terms of institutional models? You make a suggestion late in the essay that what you call deep engagement, that that is the U.S. really working through broad-based multilateral international institutions is is probably not the ideal model going forward. What's the alternative that we're looking at? Yeah, so I think that continuing – there is a big set of literature, at least among academics, about this deep engagement argument. I think this will absolutely not work. For all of the reasons that we've talked about, the modal differences in ideology, the pressures arriving from glo- arising from globalization and technological change, the rise of China, I think what the United States should aim for is coalitions of the will. Uh, find countries that we can work with in specific issue areas, and this will vary um, significantly from one issue area to another. And one example is the Proliferation Security Initiative, which was something that was begun during the Bush administration which essentially used uh, – got a set of agreements about, about 80 countries uh, that allowed them to use their national laws in a way that made it easier to board ships that might be shipping weapons of mass destruction, uh, something that was a bit harder to do before. If you look at the space regime, um, which is based essentially on some universal treaties that were signed in the 1960s. It's worked pretty well in some areas, but it hasn't worked that great in all areas. And in some areas, what you find is the United States acting by itself. We have actually great capacity to deal with problems of of stuff in space colliding with each other. And some situations in in which we worked out bilateral or multilateral deals, especially on on global positioning satellite systems. And that's been much better than thinking that we could move forward in a universal way. I mean, if you look at what's happened to the Doha round of trade negotiations, obviously what's happened, all of the climate change negotiations, you could say if you want to see a real mess in terms of a universal organization, look at FIFA. But organizations which have a situation of one nation, one vote are not likely to work very well in the contemporary environment. So we need to look for partners where we can find them in different – and those partners will differ across different issue areas. So final question. There's been a lot of anxiety in recent years about whether or not the American moment is passing. In your judgment, what are the key variables that are going to determine whether the U.S. retains its place of preeminence in the world order? There's only one, and that's what happens in China. And I think that's completely uncertain now. I mean, if you look at the industrialized world, uh, Japan, South Korea, Western Europe, I mean, the United States is doing relatively well. Um, The big question is where China ends up, whether it will be able to continue this kind of dramatic growth trajectory that it's been on for the last 20 years. Um, and especially whether it continues that trajectory without politically transforming itself. That's it. It's really not – I don't think it really is contingent on what we do. I think it really is contingent on what happens with China. All right. My guest has been Stephen Krasner, senior fellow at the Hoover Institution, the Graham H. Stewart Chair in International Relations at Stanford, and the chairman of Hoover's Foreign Policy and Grand Strategy Working Group. You can read his essay and those by other members of the group – by visiting Defining Ideas at Hoover.org. Steve, thanks for being with us. Thanks so much. For the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. All right. Thank you, Steve. 
This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.